You know, the lesson that Western Europeans drew from the Second World War is that the nation state is a problem, gives rise to conflict, and we need the EU and all this happy, clappy post border stuff. The lesson that the Jews draw from the Second World War is that the nation state is absolutely essential for one's survival. And then they look at Israel, which is a nation absolutely determined to protect its borders for very good reason. It's surrounded by hostile forces, very devoted to its national integrity. And they just see this nasty colonial style apartheid project drenched in racism. I mean, that's how they view Israel in these very irrational terms. So that shift, I think, tells us less about how Israel may have changed, but it tells us far more about how the left has changed and how they've abandoned their commitment to national self-determination and the right of the Jewish people to defend themselves. Our guest today is one of the Anglo-Saxon world's foremost political commentators. The protection of the nation-state, his most ardent belief, is demonstrated by his support for Brexit. And it was the Jewish people's principal takeaway from the Second World War. But not for Europeans who believe in the happy, clappy open borders, as Brendan calls them, and sowed the seeds of what has become a new anti-Zionist anti-Semitism. The left, he says, has deserted him. A columnist and broadcaster, you'll have seen Brendan on Sky News, GB News and Talk TV and read him in The Spectator, The New Statesman, BBC News Online, for The Daily Telegraph, The Sun and The Australian in Sydney. It's a wide-open conversation too. Taking the knee at football matches, Samuel Paty, France's free speech martyr, the term Islamophobia, and Je suis Julie, Julie Burchill, whose book, Welcome to the Woke Trials, became the latest chapter in her life. She was cancelled by her publisher. You won't want to miss a second of this captivating chat with the one and only Brendan O'Neill. A great pleasure to say welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the order to my questions has been rather thrown up in the air by Julie Burchill. The delicious irony of her latest book, Welcome to the Woke Trials. Uh, It was set for release in the spring, uh, being dumped by Little Brown Publishing, a very novel name for that company now, for crossing the line with Islamophobic comments that they refer to on Twitter. Uh, This is a spat with Ash Saka. The book was about the outrage mob chasing her. Uh, This is life imitating art in real time. Absolutely. Um, You couldn't make it up, as they used to say on the newspapers in the old days. Um, You know, a book about cancel culture being cancelled. And, you know, what's I think what is really infuriating about this is that um, Little Brown, obviously, they hired Julie Birchall because she is Julie Birchall. And now they have fired Julie Birchall because she is Julie Birchall. That's essentially what's happened. Everyone, anyone who's familiar with the work of Julie Birchall, I'm a fan of hers. I must say I've been reading her for years and years and years. Um, They know she's very colourful. She's very outspoken. She's often very offensive. She doesn't give a damn if people are offended. That's always been her style right back to the 1980s. So, um, but I think what's changed, of course, is the broader culture. And the broader culture is now one that is alarmingly intolerant to anyone who has a different way of thinking or a colourful way of speaking or who expresses themselves in in less than politically correct terms. So Julie Birchall's speech crime was that she got involved in a Twitter spat with Ash Salka, the kind of Corbynista commentator, um, and made some comments about Islam and who Muhammad was married to and so on and so forth. Uh, now, we can disagree, perhaps, uh, with Julie Birchall on whether it was wise to bring Islam into this particular discussion. But the broader point is, this does look a lot like someone being punished for criticising Islam. And I know people are saying that her comments were racist, but essentially she's been dragged over the coals and had a book contract cancelled and being called every name under the sun because she blasphemed against Muhammad. That's what's going on here. I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense. Like, that most thing Brendan says. Yeah, he's good, isn't he? <laughs> and he smells lovely. And it was the story of cancel culture which, in its place, became cancelled. A case of life imitating art. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brendan said, uh, you couldn't make this up. And 
he's a great supporter and a great friend of Israel. Yeah, he is. And of Jewish people. He very much is. Like most working class meritocrats, he recognises outsiders who made it on their own merits. Now, there's a very interesting and another very important aspect uh, to mention here about Julie, particularly in relation to this being a Jewish podcast. She's an arch Zionist. She loves Jewish history. Uh, she recounts her philo-Semitism in uh, this hilarious book called Unchosen. She grew up in Bristol outside a, a Jewish milieu completely, and this is where the woke left go from being annoyances to something rather more sinister, to Jewish ears, to immigrant ears. This is where the woke left becomes something slightly more dangerous. Yeah, I think the woke left is very dangerous. I've, I've always considered them dangerous. And if you look at the the Corbynista left in particular, you know, the thing that strikes me about them, they, they seem to believe that they can glide through life spreading hatred, spreading division, which is what they do with the politics of identity, heaping contempt upon ordinary working class people who they refer to as gammon, which is another way of saying pig. You know, they essentially called certain working class communities pigs. That's what's going on here. Um, they demonize white people, especially white men, with a cause of every problem in the world. If I ever debate these people uh, in public forums or in the media, they always, always say to me, oh, you're a white man. You know, they reduce everyone to their racial characteristics. And they promote this kind of very divisive, racialized ideology, one in which certain groups are victims and therefore they're good. And other groups are um, the beneficiaries of history or the winners of history and or, or they're privileged and therefore they're bad. So a white cis man is like the most evil creature on earth, whereas, you know, a transgender, queer, Muslim activist is like a god essentially in these people's eyes so they categorize people by race that's essentially what's going on here and in relation to um the issues that your podcast covers the key thing i think that i think the, one of the most damaging things about the politics of identity in its current form is that i think it is one of the uh, engines behind the new anti-semitism because um this new anti-semitism which has been growing in recent years i mean it has lots of the it has echoes of the old anti-Semitism, you know, Jews controlling the world, controlling the media, being a pretty selfish, destructive people. You know, those old um, racist ideas are in there. But it has this new idea, too, which is that the Jews are right up at the top of the list of the privileged. Therefore, they are bad. So people will often slip between talking about white privilege and Jewish privilege. They will say Jews can't possibly suffer prejudice or, or discrimination or, or racism because they're a privileged group. Um, and they start to um, conceive of Jews as kind of being top of the ladder and therefore evil. And that, I think, is a really key component of why so many people in the Corbynista movement were anti-Semitic, because they adhered to this very destructive, hyper-racial politics of identity in which some groups are winners and other groups are losers. And this is the sadness because there are some good old-fashioned socialists uh, who might be described as anti-Zionist or anti-Semitic that started their socialist careers as uh, philo-Semites because of course uh, Jews uh, you used to be able to punch down as well. This idea that we can be punched up or punched down. Uh, Tony Benn is an example of that. Uh, he was uh, he was someone who was very interested in dancing the horror when Israel was created. And by the end of his life, Israel got all too powerful. And uh, well, he changed sides, didn't he? Well, this is uh, I think the um, the shifting attitude to Israel is so interesting because in the 60s and early 70s, you know, between 67 and 73, really, when Israel was fighting its various conflicts with belligerent neighbouring countries, the left in the West, it wasn't uniformly pro-Israel, but there was lots of sympathy for Israel. There was sympathy for Israel as this plucky, new, um, well, new in the sense of being a, a modern, defined nation state, a new country, a new state. Um, it wasn't that long after the Holocaust. Uh, they were seen as a uh, brave people who had survived the greatest crime in human history and were creating their own country, you know, a safe haven for Jewish people and one that would be progressive and modern. Um, and that was seen as a pretty good thing. It was it was seen as an expression of self-determination, national liberation, national self-determination. And the 
the left in the West used to quite like those things. Um, but over time, it shifted enormously. And now the left is rabidly anti-Israel in a way that always makes me suspicious. I'm one of those people who thinks you should be free to criticize any country on earth uh, without being called um, racist. Uh, but there is something so iffy about the obsessive hatred with Israel. I think it was Howard Jacobson who said, listen, um, of course you can criticize Israel, but that's not what you're doing. What you're doing is uh, never losing sleep over Israel. You're obsessing over it and you're hating it with a passion that is far greater than the passion with which you hate any other nation. That's, uh, I always think, um, why do these people never talk about the Kurds, for example? Um, you know, they, they obsess over the Palestinians. They talk about them endlessly. They don't talk about any other group, um, some of whom have far greater grievances than the Palestinians, in my view. Um, so there's something very dodgy about that. And I think that shift is very interesting. And I was in I've been in Israel a few times. And the last time I was there, I was talking to someone and um, I was talking to one of the guys who was showing me around um, Jerusalem and he made a really interesting point. And I'm sure it wasn't his original observation, but he said something that was really um, connected with me. And he said, you know, the lesson that um, Western Europeans drew from the Second World War is that the nation state is a problem, gives rise to conflict and we need the EU and all this happy, clappy post-border stuff. So the, the Western, uh, Europe, Western Europe draws the lesson that the nation state is a bad thing. The lesson that the Jews draw from the Second World War is that the nation state is absolutely essential for one's survival. And I think that's actually a very good description of the shift that has taken place and which has grown more and more over the decades. So you now have Western European intellectuals and activists and um, members of the cultural elite who are very self-consciously post-borders, anti-nation state, all that kind of crap, in my view. And then they look at Israel, which is a nation absolutely determined to protect its borders for very good reason. It's surrounded by hostile forces, very devoted to its national integrity, very devoted to self-protection. And they just see this nasty colonial style apartheid project drenched in racism. I mean, that's how they view Israel in these very irrational terms. So that shift, I think, tells us less about how Israel may have changed. I'm sure Israel has changed uh, over the decades, but it, I think it tells us far more about the, how the left has changed and how they've abandoned their commitment to national self-determination and the right of the Jewish people to defend themselves. And, and they've shifted towards a position of myopic, irrational hatred of the state of Israel. Indeed. And there's something else before we move on. Um, about the term Islamophobia, the very definition of the term is fought over. Uh, whenever I hear the term Islamophobia, I freeze because there's no equivalence between the term anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. It is often used as a defence uh, for Islamism, I think, in short, isn't it? Um, and so yeah. Julie Birchall was uh, sacked, removed, cancelled uh, because basically she spoke out legitimately. Yeah, I think um, I have huge issues with the term Islamophobia. I mean, I think, does anti-Muslim bigotry exist? Yes, of course. I'm sure there are people out there. I don't think it is a common position that people hold in the way that the media sometimes tells us, tells us it is. But I think there's anti-Muslim bigots. I think there are also anti-Sikh bigots. Um, you know, there are groups of bigots who hate certain people from certain religions and certain races for you for often irrational uh, reasons so of course that exists but islamophobia that is something very very different islamophobia is a term that was invented not that long ago or, or certainly mainstreamed not that long ago in the uk in the 1990s it became mainstream in the uk largely thanks to the runnymede trust which um, issued a document about Islamophobia, and then it kind of leaks down into all the institutions and universities and all that kind of thing. And it's very, if you look at the Runnymede's description of Islamophobia, it's very interesting because they explicitly have all these things like um, people who say that Islam is inferior to the West, for example. Now, my view is that that's a perfectly legitimate position to hold, right? If you if if we are serious about, you know, exercising judgment and having open, honest discussions about the kind of value systems we want to live under, we have to be free to say, you know, we think 
Western democracy, Western liberal democracy is superior to um, political Islam, for example. But that would be counted as, as an Islamophobic view. Mm. So Islamophobia seems pretty clear to me that it, it, it's used as a way of deflecting any criticism from Islam or from Islamic practices. Now, the problem with that, I mean, it, there's many problems. One is that it's deeply censorious and people are punished and shamed and hounded out of polite society simply for expressing a view on, a, on religion. So it kind of rehabilitates uh, blasphemy law, it brings in blasphemy law by the back door. Yeah. Only this time we're not protecting Christianity as the blasphemy laws in this country did uh, before they were abolished, rightfully abolished in my view. But now it's it's protecting Islam. But then the, the so that's terrible. The additional problem is I actually think this cult of Islamophobia pushed by all these um, well-connected institutions I think it's bad for Muslims as well, because um, I, I, I think it demeans them. It turns them into these permanent victims who have to be looked after and saved. So when there is an Islamic terror attack and the left in this country always hushes it up very quickly, you know, don't look back in anger, don't talk about it too long, move on with your life. Don't be Islamophobic by obsessing over the fact that 21 girls or, uh, and young people were killed in Manchester. You know, what kind of person are you? They always take that kind of approach. I think that's bad for freedom, bad for open debate, and it's bad for Muslim communities because they are turned into children who have to be protected from legitimate, robust discussion. So it infantilizes Muslims. It censors people who just want to have an honest discussion about the difficulties and tensions in our society. So the idea of Islamophobia, I think, has had a very destructive impact on free debate. And people who compare Islamophobia to anti-Semitism, I'm afraid I just find those people incredibly suspect because there is no comparison between a recently invented term that is used largely for censorious purposes and the oldest hatred in the world, which has led to literally the, the, the killings of millions upon millions of people. And anyone who makes that comparison, I think, is, is playing a dangerous game. Brexit. Love Europe, hate the EU. We first spoke in the month before the Brexit referendum when I hosted uh, a talk radio show and you came on against the Remainer Jonathan Friedland. When I was uh, first presented with the vote, I, I pondered this love for Europe but objection to the EU. It became clearer though as I studied it that it was a fight for British values. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the Brexit, I mean Brexit is my favorite thing that's happened in my lifetime i am a, i'm a hardcore brexiteer um and i think it's the most sensible thing the british people have done since we got the franchise in, in 1928 1928 was the first year when all people including women uh, over the age of 21 that's the first time we could all vote and i think it's the best thing we've ever done with our vote because um, we rejected the European Union, which I consider to be a deeply authoritarian, deeply undemocratic institution. There is plenty of evidence for that, the way it operates, the way the European Parliament is pretty much just a rubber stamp on the ideas that the European Commission comes up with, the way it has trashed and overridden votes um, taken by the Dutch people and the French people against the European Constitution. Uh, by the Irish people against the Nice Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty, I mean, and against the Greek people who voted against EU austerity. The EU just ignores public sentiment and democratic sentiment all the time. And it tried to do the same with Brexit, as, and it still is, I think, trying to water down what the British people voted for, which was to take back control. And for me, it's not, it's not about defending British traditions. I mean, sure, I'm sure some of our parliamentary tra traditions are a bit weird. I, I, th I think they're fine. I don't think we, we need a radical overhaul of how Parliament cheers or operates or whatever else it does. Um, but it was about defending people power. It was about defending the right of ordinary people to choose the people who make the laws that we live under. Now, that now might sound very simple, but that's the idea that has pushed forward every democratic movement in history, right from the levelers during the English Civil War in the 1640s through to the Chartists in the 1840s who wanted to vote for working class men and the suffragettes in the 1910s. You know, one of the uh, famous reasons that the suffragettes started to engage in civil disobedience is because they said, if we have no say over who makes the laws, then why shouldn't we break the laws? I mean, this has been the uh, cohering idea of democratic movements that if we're expected to live under a law we need to have some democratic control over the people who make those laws 
in the European Union, you don't have that because the European Commission drafts laws or regulations or rules and the European Parliament essentially just nods along and pushes it through. So uh, voting against that, I think, was entirely in keeping with the best British tradition of the past 350 or 400 years, which is the tradition of standing up for the right of ordinary people to govern their own nation and to govern their own lives. And I think that's what Remainers miss. They sometimes think that we are just nostalgists for the past or nostalgists for empire. I mean, I must have spoken to thousands of Brexiteers over the past four years in various talks I've done and traveling around. I've never met a single person who has said, oh, I can't wait for the British Empire to come back. Or, or, you know, I really am absolutely determined to defend the right of the Speaker in the House of Commons to use a certain phrase. I've never heard anyone say anything like that. All they say is, I want my vote to count. And when we have rules and regulations coming from the European Union, I feel that it doesn't count. Here, here, here is what (laughs) I'd say to that. But uh, looking at it from a sort of Jewish perspective, I mean, these traditions do look archaic, but actually, as Hayek said, and, uh, you know, we can argue about um, what kind of chap he was, Friedrich Hayek, but but he did say things like that, you know, that if the tradition uh, that you look up to, that you have experienced, uh, it makes you behave in a certain way. Uh, the, the mace looks like a religious artifact. Do you remember Ron Brown threw it on the floor in 1984? <sighs> You know, it's just a piece of metal. It might be solid gold, it might have diamonds on it, but you know, it, it is the sort of it's like the lifeblood of the uh, of the parliament. We don't have that anywhere else, and it's taken us a thousand years to knock three times on the door and leave a wooden mark on it. And these things really mean something to immigrants, sons of immigrants, grandsons of immigrants like you and I, to coalesce around Britishness. And and I get I get laughed at for saying things like that, and I'm. I, I have to say it in a podcast controlled environment for my own personal safety. <laughs> well, um, um, yes, I'm sure you do. That's that's the sadness of our times. Uh, but I, I think um, I, I, I actually agree with you. And I think the thing when I've been when I've visited Parliament or gone to Parliament to, to meet someone or, or do something, which is not very often, I must say, um, the thing that strikes me when I see these what might appear to be archaic systems or old-fashioned ways of doing things or very traditional forms of behavior the thing it makes me think is how how long it took for us to get this parliament which is a democratic parliament where we select the people the 650 people who sit in there we select them and we can throw them out i mean it took centuries for that to happen yeah. Centu- literally centuries for that to happen in a meaningful way so when i see you know um the the, the the wooden door that's been knocked on so many times or the various systems that have been put in place i do think about the long long struggle it took for, of huge numbers of generations to get us to this position um so i agree with that i i'm i'm a bit of a radical democrat so i do want to overhaul some things that I think are problematic like for example I'm in favour of abolishing the House of Lords or I certainly think we should have a referendum on abolishing the House of Lords um I don't think that's that's a tradition I think is past itself by date Mm -hmm. um but uh, and but you know there are other traditions in Parliament I have a lot of admiration for but the thing is I think you're absolutely right about the question of immigrants and and what message we send to immigrants these days my parents uh, are immigrants. So I'm a first generation Briton. I'm the first generation in my entire family history to be in this country. So I'm a complete newcomer. Um, of course, my parents came in a slightly odd uh, historical period. You know, Ireland gained its independence in the 1920s. My parents came here in the in 1970, just as the conflict between Britain and Ireland uh, in Northern Ireland was hotting up once again. So there was lots of, it was a bit of a complicated journey for them. Mm. And they had some pretty instinctive, I wouldn't say anti-British, but they were uncomfortable with aspects of British history, which is understandable given that the town they both came from was burnt to the ground in the 1920s, which was something that their grandparents remembered and talked about. So there's all that going on. But lots of immigrants have that. Lots of immigrants yeah. have a difficult, their families, yes. their uh, forefathers had a difficult relationship with Britain. But I think this is such an important question. How do we encourage immigrants to 
embrace this country, embrace its values and embrace the project of being British and what that means. And I think too often now, the signal that our institutions and our politicians send to immigrants is, well, this country is a bit crap. Uh, you've got that Natural History Museum asking itself whether it is, uh, you know, is it a sinful place? Was Charles Darwin a bad person? You've got the British Library constantly banging on about its links with slavery. You've got politicians who express a very shame-faced approach to the British flag or any mention of British history. Very few politicians stood up for uh, statues when they were being attacked over the summer during the Black Lives Matter uprising. All of this builds up and sends a message to new arrivals or, their, or the offspring of new arrivals saying, you know, essentially saying, why would you want to integrate into such a, an evil country? We've got to be so careful not to do that, because I think um, one byproduct of that is something like Islamic extremism, which is which is a problem in some Muslim communities. And I think that's part and parcel of sending a signal to people that this is a wicked country full of wicked people. I think that creates an enormous amount of hostility. Around the time of the BLM uh, changes, these sort of uh, cultural ideas, multiculturalism to the fore, I basically reached out to as many uh, immigrant communities as I could and thought to myself, is there, is there anyone else who's from an immigrant community that was also proud to be British? So I got on the phone to Catherine Burbal Singh <laughs> <laughs> and Inaya Falarin Iman and, uh, of course, Trevor Phillips. And to expand on your point there, Catherine Burbal Singh, uh, with her amazing Michaela School in Wembley and various other places, she said, you know, let's stop telling our Nigerian and Jamaican British kids to bring their flags in and bring in their, their foods and, uh, you know, stop telling uh, black kids that they're not from here. Uh, and that the idea that we can continue to coalesce uh, around British values and people scoff at British values. There's so many good ones. And, you know, you talk about certain I mean, I talked to uh, many Sikh people around the Grenfell Tower um, disaster and about how they brought their um, uh, traditions of food to to those people who were struggling. It's a it's a Sikh tradition, um, and they had a 1947 problem with Britain. Um, that's not that's not what we have in the Jewish thing. We're really quite grateful of saving us from Hitler. I must tell you. Um, in fact, my my uncle's middle name is Winston, and, uh, and the company that my grandfather set up was called Britannia Typewriters. So. That's the sort of tradition that I come from. And it is no coincidence that when there are protests against uh, Jeremy Corbyn, you will see uh, the Israeli flag, of course, a, a defiant symbol of uh, national pride, but also very much next to it, the uh, the British flag. And in opposition with EU flags, you'll see the Palestinian uh, one. So uh, we'll yeah. leave people to ponder that. Covid. <laughs> there, this is this is what I think is a, a sort of a news gatherer, someone who has spent my uh, career um, making news, and, and I think that's the most generous term I can say. Perhaps manipulating news, uh, localizing news to communities. There's real COVID, and then there's media and government COVID. Mm. And I decided a while ago that the real threat to us comes from the latter, in terms of the curtailments of our personal <laughs> freedoms. They better push back on this tier three, tier two, tier one nonsense as soon as this plague is over, because I fear, Brendan, that some of this will continue to to impinge on our lives. I completely agree. Um, that's one of the things that worries me most about <coughs> the current period and the COVID crisis is that um, history shows us that when governments accrue a lot of power, they're often very reluctant to relinquish it after the crisis, after the emergency. And that's something we've got to be incredibly um, conscious of and, and wary about going into 2021. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a COVID conspiracy theorist uh, like you. I know COVID is real. Um, I think it's, it's quite serious. Uh, uh, I had COVID um, in late March, early April. And um, for me, it was kind of mostly just unpleasant for a few days and lost my tense, sense of taste and smell and had these completely bizarre headaches um, and was very, very tired for uh, about four or five days. Um, but it was it was quite manageable. Uh, I've been sicker before with other kind of bugs and flu. So it was for me, it was manageable. I think for most people, 
um, it is manageable. Obviously, it gets more and more dangerous the older you get. So I think there should have been greater protection of older people, especially in care homes. And the government failed on that from to a shocking degree. It, it, I think that the problem was when we had the first lockdown is that the, the government locked down healthy young people and stopped them from going to work and being productive. And it failed to lock down vulnerable older people in care homes, which were, um, you know, old people were being sent back from hospitals into care homes where the disease was spreading and so on. So the lockdown myopia, I think, has a lot to answer for because we became so obsessed with locking down the general population and policing their behavior, making sure they weren't going for two jogs a day or going to the park and all that stuff, that we forgot to protect the people who we knew pretty early on were the most vulnerable, which was people over the age of 80, really, and and in some cases over the age of 70. Um, So that was a failure. And I think that failure is largely down to the way in which we, we grasped onto the Chinese idea of locking down very early on and we haven't let go all year and so I think there's COVID there's the real thing there's the virus which is quite contagious and which is dangerous for older populations so there's COVID but then as you say there's something else and and there's something else I think is is the political cultural climate in which COVID has come to this country and the political and cultural climate is one of uh, politics of fear, a politics of authoritarianism, a kind of apocalyptism, you know, this idea that the world's coming to an end. We see that idea in relation to the politics of climate change and yeah. lots of other issues as well. So when COVID came, all those pre-existing political trends, many of which I think are quite irrational, all those pre-existing political trends just completely exploded and gave rise to the most authoritarian experiment in living memory. And my concern is twofold. Firstly, that that authoritarian experiment will go on and we have to be very clear to politicians that we do not want it to go on any longer than necessary. And the second thing is it's had such a destructive impact on people's lives and livelihoods. Um, Untreated cancer, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lost jobs, despair, poverty, unemployment, mental ill health, all those things are going to be consequences of what the government did and what its cheerleaders demanded. And I think someone at some point will have to to answer for that too. Yes, and uh, it will be at the ballot box across the West. And of course, every time Matt Hancock uh, says something incredibly gloomy, uh, he always refers to what Holland are doing, what France are doing, what Germany are doing. It sounds a bit like the European Union is back with us. We've got to be all tied by the ankles, depending on what people are doing. 800 miles away, over a 30 mile stretch of water. Taking the knee, Brendan. Um, now, this has really killed me. Of all the things that I've spoken about, this one uh, really, really took me out. I spoke out against it because of the overt politicization of football. That's the only point I was making. I wanted to watch Aston Villa lose in peace. That was my only prayer. <laughs> I didn't want any more. Yes, I like kick it out. I know Troy Townsend. And to a certain extent, I understand that the Rooney rule, this idea of, you know, there should be one black candidate. He'll never get appointed, by the way, at Manchester City, but at least he's on there. And I was attacked by anti-Semites over and over again. It has created division where there was peace. And, you know, Millwall are entitled as paying customers in this free country to boo if they want. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, I, I think football, football fans have uh, the right to boo. And I think they were right to boo. And the reason I say that is firstly, because uh, I think booing Black Lives Matter is not the same as booing black people. And we know this for a fact because football fans up and down the country every weekend cheer on black players. Uh, you know, kids worship black players, um, Millwall fans and Aston Villa fans and every other fan um, cheers black players every single weekend. Yeah. That's what they do. They love them and, and they appreciate them. And Millwall has had black players as, as its player of the year. Um, and they have black supporters as well, Brent. Yeah, exactly. And that's how and that's how football works. And, um, you know, Black Lives Matter with small letters 
I have never in my life met someone who disagrees with that statement or, uh, and who doesn't understand that Black Lives Matter as much as any other life. But Black Lives Matter with capital letters is something very different. As you say, it has eccentric views which are not popular with ordinary people. People don't want to defund the police. They don't want to destroy the nuclear family. Um, they don't want to dismantle patriarchy or, or push, push out more and more gender fluidity nonsense and all this other stuff. They want normal political life. So they're opposed to Black Lives Matter. And also for the Millwall fans, as they made clear in, as a supporters group made clear in a statement, they associate BLM with the behavior that we saw in the UK over the summer with, you know, attacking Winston Churchill, attempts to burn the Union flag. You know, these are fairly patriotic people who just don't like organizations that attack British history and British uh, monuments. That's, in my view, that's not racism. That's them defending what they see as important British ideas. But here's the thing that really irks me about all of this, which is football has fairly successfully become a kind of post-racial sphere of life, right? There was a real problem with racism in football in the 70s and 80s in particular, you know, the bananas on the pitch yeah. and monkey noises and all that really, really horrible behaviour. That's almost completely disappeared. I think it's mainly, I think the main reason it's disappeared is because ordinary fans just didn't put up with it, right? And the more black fans there were mixing with white fans and Asian fans, right? you get to know people. You don't accept the dehumanisation of certain groups. So over time, that stuff just disappeared, which is great. And football is one of the only professions in which young working class black men can make an extraordinary living in this country. 30% of professional players are black. And then you have guardianistas moaning about how racist football is. And you think, hold on, are 30% of columnists at the Guardian black? No, they're not. So, you know, who are they to lecture football? So football had become this place in which black and white fans cheer black and white players and it's there's very little uh, racial animosity anymore. Then suddenly over the past year, you inject this new form of racial politics. You inject the Black Lives Matter politics. You inject critical race theory, which is a BLM, yeah. uh, uh, an ideology that BLM subscribes to. All black people are victims. All white people are privileged and racist. You bring in taking the knee week in, week out. And it's re-racializing football. It's telling football fans you have to obsess about racial categories. You have to think about them all the time. You have to curb your behavior. You have to check. You have to relate to people as racial creatures. That's essentially what it says, yeah. rather than what football fans had already achieved, which is relating to each other as human beings. So that's the real problem here. And I think football fans, actually, when they say, look, we don't want this in our game, that's actually a positive message because they're saying we want to come together as large groups of angry, passionate, cheering fans to with each other from all around, from different backgrounds to watch a game of football. We don't want lectures in critical race theory when we're just trying to watch Millwall play a game. Indeed, I, I am guilty of the tiniest bit of virtue signalling on the day that everyone decided to black out their bio picture on Twitter and Instagram for Black Lives Matter. I did something because I'm from a certain time and place I'm from the West Midlands in the 70s and 80s. So instead of the black, uh, black tap picture, I put the two-tone white, black and white checker because I'm old enough to remember what two-tone meant. Yeah. It was the union of, of black and white. And I went to Hansworth Grammar School, which was, God forbid, a selective entry area. But what it did was it took Punjabi kids and West Indian kids and Chinese kids and Jewish kids and, and, and plenty of Irish Catholic kids into this melange and maybe, just maybe, did the Neil Kinnock and Joe Biden on them, propelled them into a tertiary education that their parents <laughs> didn't have before. And I got phoned up by some bloke and said, you know, they should have their say and everything. And he completely misunderstood the two-tone check that I put on there, basically because he was 10 years younger than me. And that that's really what I, <laughs> you know, I'm from a certain time and place where we were all the same. Uh, we were all brummies. We had a unified identity. And I am deeply sad that uh, I should be marginalised in my former city. It's not my home anymore, but it is definitely my city by this absolute nonsense. However, 
the, the, the cat's out the bag now. And of course, once they adopted BLM and this thing called No Room for Racism, once they'd realized BLM was very dangerous, although Sky Sports are still going on about BLM, they had to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is what the Premier League have done, to which I thank them, not because I'm a Jew, but because they had to square the circle, because without adopting the, now it's like poker, identity poker, because without the IHRA definition within football, uh, it meant that anti-racism excluded anti-Semitism, and that is the problem of the left. Mm. Uh, and so now, finally, the Premier League have squared the circle, if you like, and adopted the IHRA definition, which they had to after BLM. But frankly, Brendan, I, I, I regret both of them to stop them being like the old Labour Party under Corbyn, where anti-racism excluded anti-Semitism. Yes, uh, I think that's that's the situation we've ended up in. I mean, I would go even further and I would say that on the left, I think that what they refer to as anti-racism, not only does it exclude anti-Semitism, I think it inflames anti-Semitism because th what they refer to as anti-racism is not the kind of anti-racism you were just talking about in the Midlands in the 70s or the 80s with two-tone, you know, black and white, unite and fight. That was the slogan and all those bands, you know, the specials is, I'm afraid, the only ones I can think of. Um, I'm not as, right. I'm not as au fait with it as you might be. Um, but yeah, it, it was very different then because anti-racism then, it was very much influenced by the anti-racism in the United States in the 50s and 60s, which was about forget colour, essentially. Forget yeah. colour, let's talk about character. What do we have in common? What, you know, what are we interested in? And that had a big influence on British anti-racist movements or culture in the in the 70s and the 80s. But the anti-racism we have today that comes from particularly from groups like the Corbynistas and other radical leftists is something completely different. It's it's about obsessing over race. It's about obsessing over racial categories. And, um, you, you know, the thing that really strikes me is that over the past four or five years, Every single time I've been on the TV or the radio with uh, with a Corbyn supporter and I've mentioned the anti-Semitism thing, they respond, what about Islamophobia? Um, uh, what about anti-black racism? And there's this, uh, you, you know, Owen Jones and Ash Sarkar have both written pieces over the past few weeks, which I think are really questionable pieces where they essentially say, um, Labour has has invented a hierarchy of racism, and it's uh, that's really a way of them saying they give too much attention to anti-Semitism. What about Islamophobia? What about anti-black racism? And they they reference this report that was done about uh, Islamophobia in the Labour Party, which was basically a survey of a couple of hundred people who said they had overheard certain prejudiced views and so on. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. Muslim MPs were not hounded out of the Labour Party by racist scumbags in the way that Jewish MPs were. Um, Muslim representatives of Labour are not constantly insulted online and subjected to racist abuse in the way that Jewish um, members of the Labour Party are. There's no comparison. So what they're actually doing, they're actually diminishing the seriousness of left-wing anti-Semitism in the guise of being anti-racist. That's that's the really cynical game they're playing. So they pretend that they're being anti-racist by saying, what about anti-black racism? What about Islamophobia? But it, the design seems to be to diminish the seriousness of, of left-wing anti-Semitism, anti which as we've seen over the past few years has become incredibly toxic. Yeah. So um, there's this thing, there's this way in which the, the, um, the redefinition of anti-racism away from uh, a very noble cause, a very unifying cause, which was about recognizing our human connections and forgetting about our racial differences. The shift away from that towards an anti-racism, which is about um, who's a privileged group and who's a oppressed group. Um, Hindus are privileged, but Muslims are oppressed. Jews are privileged. And, uh, you know, this racial categorization of everyone, that is so destructive, so toxic, and it's actually rehabilitating racism in new ways. And I think that's when the left talks about being anti-racist, I think actually what they mean is that they are politically correct racialists in the sense that they yeah. understand the world in racial terms. Yeah. And that I think is incredibly dangerous. Many people don't understand you're articulating it 
extremely clearly and for that I'm extremely grateful to you. Your own background as Irish blood, Brexit heart. Um, <laughs> what, what's so interesting about the Irish community, and, and I grew up in, a, in an Irish city, in an Irish milieu, is how easily assimilatable the Irish people are into British culture. We don't even think about Anton Deck or Dermot O'Leary or Brendan O'Neill as being anything but British. And, you know, they are Declan Donnelly and Anthony McPartlin. And the, 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 basically the, the whole idea of Irishness, even the Irish religions that, that, that come here are easily assimilatable into British culture, despite the sort of historical differences. How, how, how do you do it? How do we do it? I think um, <laughs> might have to ask the generation before mine, the ones right. who came here, how they did it. But I think I think you're right. And I think um, the neo-racialists would say it's because we enjoy white privilege. Right. That's what they will always say. And, you know, they will just say you're a white man and that's it. And the thing that annoys me about that when people say it to me is that they are erasing, you know, fairly distinctive history that I have had and many millions of other Irish immigrants and their children have had that's pretty it's similarly with you if you're written off as a as a white man that's that does erase your own experiences your own history things that are different about your life in comparison with someone who has been in the United Kingdom for thousands of generations so that always gets on my nerves but but you're right the um the Irish have assimilated pretty well I, I'm not that wasn't always the case um and if you look at the Victorian period in particular, um, the Irish were seen as a very problematic people. And the cartoons of the era really speak to that. You know, they were depicted as monkeys and and it was similar in the United States as well. You know, the, the Irish were seen as being more like black people than white people. I mean, that's how it was understood. So, so there has been a history of that. But more recently, there has been a very good uh, level of assimilation but I'm very interested in migrant groups that assimilate well and migrant groups that don't assimilate well and I'm very interested in why that happens and so um, I think Indian Hindus are very well assimilated and are not uniformly successful but very successful uh, I think newer African communities are integrating well and um, their children are doing incredibly well in education the Irish as you say have integrated well Irish travellers haven't integrated well, but that's part of their identity, I guess, to not integrate. Uh, but then there are other communities. Uh, I think Jews have integrated incredibly well. I say that as someone who grew up near Golders Green. So I have a lot of experience. I didn't meet any Jewish people at all when I was at school because I went to a pretty hardcore convent school in northwest London, a Catholic school. Uh, but we would hang out in Golders Green in the Irish pubs and we were often meet Jewish people and uh, admire their level of integration. So those communities have done well. And then there are others who are, have struggled a bit more. Some West Indies descended people struggle um, or haven't done as well. I think Muslim communities have certain problems too. And I think this is another danger of identity politics. This is another danger of sending the signal to certain groups of people that you're not welcome here. This is a racist country. People probably hate you. And I think that does chip away over time at a community's ability or willingness to integrate. So I don't think Indian Hindus are naturally superior to Pakistani Muslims, right? I think they are. They both have the shared capacity to become really good members of this society. And many, many of them on both sides have done that. But a, a, a political system, uh, the, the ideology of multiculturalism or the ideology of identity politics, which too often sends the signal, this is an Islamophobic society. It, it's ingrained in this society. People in this country are racist. They hate Muslims. When you constantly say that all the time, it does send a message to people that maybe I should stay on the outside. Maybe I shouldn't um, get involved in this society that I've come to. So I, I, I've always been fascinated by those differentials. And I think with the Irish community, it was they made an effort. They struggled sometimes yeah. against prejudice, sometimes against poverty and all these other things that existed over the past hundred years. But there was this sense that um, if you come to this country, 
you should really try and be part of it. And, and that's often missing in our discussions of immigration today. Can I talk about your own evolution, which is uh, from living Marxism? Now, living Marxism, now, correct me if I'm wrong here, this is about the, uh, the empowerment of the individual using technology. This was one of the aspects of your ideas in the 80s and 90s, that the individual could be empowered by the modern world to achieve more of a greatness, a personal achievement. Is, is that a correct way of ascribing living Marxism and perhaps an explanation that's straight line to the way you are now? Yeah, I mean, it, it was broader than that. Living Marxism was a magazine published by the Revolutionary Communist Party. The Revolutionary Communist Party was this kind of a group of heretics, essentially, on the left, 70s and late 70s and, and through the 80s, which is before my time. I got involved in the mid 90s when I was very young and then it disbanded a year later in 1996. So the Revolutionary Communist Party hasn't existed for a long time. Living Marxism stopped publishing in 2000, so that hasn't existed for a long time either. It was essentially a magazine that was about, it was very favourable towards freedom, um, freedom of speech, the freedom of the individual, freedom of association, and it was very favourable towards democracy, the right of people in all areas of life to have some control over what they do uh, in politics, democracy in the workplace, you know, generally arguing for a greater involvement of ordinary people in decision-making processes. And it was also pro-enlightenment, pro-progress. Um, it was critical of environmentalism, for example, which we believed was uh, had, had become this kind of slightly upper middle class sniffy movement that was against the industrial revolution, against modernity, against progress. So we were pro-progress, pro-democracy, pro-freedom. That's really what living Marxism was about. So I think my journey to where I am now has not actually been that big a step because yeah. I still adhere to all those views. I think what's happened is that the left more broadly has changed. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can't remember who said it. Someone once said, I didn't leave the left, the left left me. I often feel like that because the left is now not in favour of freedom. It's actually incredibly authoritarian. The left is not in favour of democracy, as we saw over the past four years when it tried to override the largest democratic vote in the history of this country. And it's not really in favour of progress, um, as we can see in its um, increasingly irrational climate change campaigning, which openly calls for shrinking the human footprint, less industrialization, um, sustainable growth in Africa, which very often means no growth at all. So I didn't abandon the ideas of freedom, democracy and progress. Other people did. So I see myself as being, you know, I've, obviously I've changed my mind on certain things or I might emphasize one thing over another in different periods of time. But I think I've been fairly consistent in my view, whereas the rest of the left has ditched its founding yeah. principles and become this pretty weird authoritarian misanthropic movement. Am I being thick here by suggesting that living Marxism has a lot of parallels with Thatcherism? <laughs> well, uh, no. It sounds similar. I'll tell you why I say that. One of the greatest acts of social justice that I've seen since the war, as I worked the Birmingham and black country area as a teenager, was the empowerment of the working family to buy their own council house. Roads tidied up, walls were clad, perhaps that wasn't such a good move in, in the future. People were taking foreign holidays on the knock, on the credit. There were two cars in the driveway. People were getting on and in buying their council house for 60% of its value, creating a wealth for the next generation to perhaps move on as well. The empowerment of the individual economically, uh, it, to me, as someone who is outside of Marxism and perhaps was a, a, you know, a casual Tory voter, not a member of the Tory party, Thatcher's very ideological right-wing ideas seem to converge with a lot of what you said just then. Well, uh, living Marxism was, would have, was stingingly critical of Thatcher um, for various reasons in relation to events that happened before I achieved political consciousness, like the miners' strike and things like that. that right. was, so they would have been on different sides then. But I think what's important about that period, you know, not just the 70s and 80s, but before that too, 
the real conflict between the left and the, I mean, the left and the right had a shared vision in a sense, in, in the sense that both were or both claimed to be devoted to the expansion of freedom and to upholding people's democratic rights. I mean, that's the right and the left both said that they disagreed over how that might be achieved. They disagreed over how progress would be achieved. So the left would say, no, we have to seize the means of production and then we can have genuine industrial utopia. Whereas the right would have said, no, no, the market is the best way to ensure that everyone is wealthy and so on. So that was the disagreement. But they agreed on expanding human wealth, expanding human freedom. It's just, But the difference was over how that can be done. Now, the difference now is that the left, most of all the left, has given up on those ideas entirely. So it's no longer interested in expanding human freedom. It's only interested in cancelling wrong thing and censoring people and so on and being super pro lockdown. It's no longer interested in human progress and industrialization, and in- increasingly sees those things as bad and evil and destructive. So there's been a really important, massive shift in how the left thinks of what the, the goal of a good society should be. But I, I really agree with you on, on the... Um, council house thing because i grew up in a council house uh, which my parents bought uh, thanks to thatcher and i cannot explain to you the, the when i meet members of the middle class left there is no policy that infuriates them yeah. more than the right to buy policy they absolutely loathe it they think it was the most destructive thing that's yeah. ever happened and this really infuriates me because these are very often people who grew up in nice houses that their parents owned yeah who think that working class families like mine, which bought their houses, uh, their council houses, they think essentially that we stole from society. That's really how they see it. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, expresses some of the class snobbery on the left, yeah. because it's fine for them to be property holding yeah. people, but not for riffraff like yeah. the rest of us. So yeah. um, that's one thing I'll always be grateful to Thatcher for. She allowed families like mine to own a real form of wealth that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. I get scoffed at for that. And I, I really mean it. And you could tell on any road in Warsaw, the house that had been bought under the preemption clause and the one that hadn't, because the windows were a bit smashed and they hadn't looked after it. And they were probably in arrears with their rent with the council and they hadn't bothered or hadn't got their act together to buy their house at 50, 40, maybe 30 percent of the value of it for 60 grand, which, uh, you know, was just about affordable on the wages in those days of 17, 18 grand a year. It was, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful. And of course, uh, my favourite moment at PMQs was when Michael Howard reached over at Tony Blair for all of us, because I'm a grammar school boy as well. And this grammar school boy won't take any truck from that public school boy over there. I think it's my favourite <laughs> moment ever. And I don't think it'll ever be topped. Um, Brendan, you've given so much time and I'm, I'm so grateful today. And just, just one final question about uh, optimism. You must be optimistic about Britain post-Brexit. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a natural optimist. I, know I, I, I moan and criticise things all the time, but I am a natural <laughs> optimist. I'm optimistic about a lot of things. Even though 2020 has been the maddest year I think any of us can remember, you know, the whole Western world locked down, the economy thrown into the toilet. Um, Very destructive policies were enacted, in my view. There was an absolute explosion of wokeness um, and censorship and intolerance from the summer onwards. And I think some of our institutions went completely and utterly mental in terms of hiding statues or hiding exhibits or all that stuff. So a lot of absolutely insane stuff happened uh, this year. But I think there is such a well of common sense in this country. There's such a well, and you will know this as a long, uh, as a, an accomplished broadcaster who speaks to people a lot. There is such a well of, of decency and common sense and uh, uh, people wanting to be in control of the country and to push it in a positive direction. And that's still there, even though members of the political elites tried for a long time to suppress the vote for Brexit or to tell people they're racist and stupid and everything else that thirst among ordinary people for a more reasonable democratic form of politics, which is concerned about people's economic and uh, futures rather than being concerned about stupid issues like statues and so on. That well of common sense is always going to stand this country in good stead, in my view. And if a political party comes along 
which is genuinely willing to engage, to jump into that well of common sense and really to engage with it, that could have a massively transformative impact on politics. So post-Brexit, I hope there will emerge new political forces which will say, you know, we've talked to the chattering classes more than enough. We've listened to the media elites for too long. Now let's go out into the country and talk to the millions and millions of people and engage with the wisdom of the crowd. And if we do that, I think post-Brexit will be absolutely fine. Amen. Brendan O'Neill, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for all the time that you've given. Uh, you only have to give a short final answer to this, which is the Nobel Peace Prize for 2021. It's been given to the World Food Programme. Perhaps we should give it to either Donald Trump or Samuel Paty, the French national uh, teacher who was tragically killed for free speech. So my choice is Samuel Paty. I think he is the hero of the year. And I think one of the most disgraceful things of this year has been the way in which people in the UK just kind of ignored that um, horrific atrocity, you know, a man beheaded in broad daylight for the crime of teaching children about freedom of speech. That should have got a lot more coverage in the UK. Our politicians should have stood shoulder to shoulder with France in relation to that. Um, I think it's embarrassing that we didn't do that. But, you know, Paty is the kind of person who gives, I'm sure he gives French people hope. I think he should give all of us hope, which is people are, are, are brave enough to stand up for freedom of speech in a time when that can be quite a difficult thing to do. So um, he's my hero of 2020. I think there have been lots of heroes this year, but I think he's he's got to be number one. Brendan O'Neill, thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thanks, Johnny. Brendan, that was amazing. Thank you oh. so much for your generosity of time. No, thank you. And another chance to thank Brendan so much, sincerely, for your time. Thank you, Brendan. Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And be first to hear the next show by subscribing now. Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review. That really helps bring more listeners to the show.